Amen. Let's look to our food this morning. Would you pray with me and for me? Father, help that last song to be our thoughts, our prayers, and the desires of our heart. Help us not to look anywhere except for to your perfect word, for how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for you in your more excellent words. So, Father, we just ask that we would look to that firm foundation, that our eyes would not be distracted as we look to other things, maybe out of distraction or maybe out of trying to look at two things at once. So, Father, convict us today. Show us not where other people's eyes are wandering off of you, but where our eyes are wandering from you. So we ask that you would convict us through the power of your Spirit, that you would give us also the power from your Spirit to turn from our sin and to repent and embrace Christ, to walk in Christ-likeness, to walk in the Spirit, that we might not walk in the flesh as we pursue the world and the flesh and the devil. Father, remove distractions from us this morning. Uh, help the stresses of our life to take a back seat to the de-stressor of our life, which is you. And we find you in your word. So we ask now that we would see you clearly in your word. Help me to preach your thoughts and that alone, not mine. We're not here for that this morning. We are here for your word. So help us to see it with eyes of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You can stay seated. I forgot to do the scripture reading first. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 16 verses 1 through 11, which read, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that it did not speak about bread? But where are the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What word do you hear? Hi, Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi, Peter. 
Which word did you hear? Well, that answer, as I'm sure you just discovered, depends on where you looked, right? Because if you looked at Green Needle, you heard Green Needle. And if you looked at Brainstorm, you heard Brainstorm. And so the answer depends on where your eyes were looking. But regardless of where you look, there is an answer. Do you know what it is? It was Brainstorm. It was actually brainstorm. And so that means if you looked otherwise, even if you looked at Green Needle and you heard Green Needle, it means you were wrong because you had your eyes looking in the wrong place. And so if you had your eyes in the wrong place and that did end up resulting in you having the wrong answer, I'm going to give you the advice by way of one famous theologian named Obi-Wan Kenobi who said, be careful to not trust your eyes for they will deceive you. And certainly our eyes will will and do deceive us. And why is that? Well, it's a term we've talked about before, but it's confirmation bias. And I can explain that by way of an illustration. See, for example, if you're looking to see your favorite team win the big game, what are you going to do when that ref calls for the instant replay on that tough-to-figure-out call? You already know the answer, right? Of course you know the answer. Right? Because you know that your team should have the right call in their favor. And if the ref thinks otherwise, no offense to Luke here, they are a blind bat. Right? I'm sure you've been called that before at times, Luke. Uh, but the point is, though, when that instant replay is shown, our eyes are fixed on our team winning, and so we know the answer before we see it, and if they, even if our lion eyes show otherwise, when we see that instant replay, what are we going to do anyways? We're going to boo. Because, the, because it doesn't fit with what we want to be true. That's confirmation bias. That's what it is. So now that you know what confirmation bias is, you will see it everywhere. And yes, that's a pun. You will see it in sports. You will see it in politics. You will see it in arguments and debates with each other. You will see it in just about everything. And there's one place you absolutely will see it, and we see it in our text this morning, and that is with religion. Make no mistake, we all have confirmation bias, and we especially have it when it comes to religion. Matthew 16, we see the confirmation bias of the religious leaders when they look at Jesus and they conclude that he is not the Messiah. They look at him and they conclude that he is not legitimate. Instead, they conclude he's a fraud. They conclude that he's not holy, but in fact, they conclude he's sinful. They conclude that he's not of God, but of Satan. And so consequently, they reject him as their Messiah. And we saw that back in Matthew chapter 12. And since Matthew chapter 12, we are seeing how because their eyes have been set on that conclusion that Jesus can't be the Messiah, their actions wrongly follow And those actions, as we see, led to direct and eventual violent opposition to Jesus. And so in our passage this morning, we see Jesus interacting with these religious leaders and their confirmation bias, and we see him interact with them as they have just asked him, yet again, to show a miraculous sign. And why do they want a miraculous sign? Because they really want to know if Jesus is the Messiah. Is that what's going on? No, not at all. They aren't asking for a sign because they want to believe. 
They're asking for a sign because they want to justify their continual unbelief. And so because of this, they only saw what they wanted to see, and they refused to see what they didn't want to see. And so this in mind, Jesus then turns to his disciples in verse 6, and he warns them, saying, Beware of their leaven. Which is basically an illustrative way of saying, Beware of their bias and their unbelief. Right? He says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay? Or the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And that's what he's talking about. See, leaven, it permeates through the dough, and he's warning them, and this leaven, which is usually in the Bible a representation of evil and evil spreading, he says, don't allow that to happen to your hearts. See, over and over, Jesus is warning them against unbelief and calling them to belief. And we see that this morning in our passage. So how, then, do we beware of the bias of unbelief? Well, four ways, and here they are. To beware or defeat the bias of unbelief, we must first see the blindness of unbelief, the bent towards unbelief, the battle for unbelief, or for belief, and the blessings of belief. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 16, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. I'll read them again here for us. Verse 1, it reads, And the Pharisees came to test him. And they asked for him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, saying, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So far in the book of Matthew, we've seen Jesus perform numerous miracles over and over and over. We saw him heal the sick. We saw him cast out demons. We saw him make the lame walk, the blind see, and we also saw how he fed not just one large crowd, but two of them with just a few loaves and fish. And we even saw him raise the dead. And how do the religious leaders of Jesus' day respond despite their eyes having seen this? More, please. But they don't say please, do they? They demand more. And why do they ask for more signs? Because their confirmation bias has led them into willful unbelief. They're not just unable to believe, they don't want to believe in Jesus. And so they reject him. And so in response to their willful unbelief, Jesus rebukes them, and he does so by giving them an analogy of the weather. That's what he's doing. He's saying, look, you can read the signs of nature, yet you religious leaders, and this is pretty ironic, right? You are completely incapable of reading the signs of the supernature, of of the signs of heaven is what he's saying. Another way you could say this is he's saying you can read the signs of the earth, but you're blind to the signs of heaven. And blind they were, which is why Jesus called them blind guides back in Matthew chapter 15. And the reason they were blind guides is because they had seen the signs of heaven that were miraculously performed by heaven's agent, by heaven's Messiah, who was Jesus Christ. They saw it over and over and over. And yet, because their eyes were fixed in the wrong place, they weren't able to see the truth, which left them spiritually blind. Where were their eyes fixed? Well, not where they should have been. That's for sure the answer. Uh, But they were fixed where? We saw this a few weeks ago. Upon their traditions, upon their customs, upon their rituals. But where should their eyes have been fixed? Upon God's word alone. And make no mistake, the second we get our eyes off of God's word onto something else, we're blind. 
we're not going to be able to see, which is why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, let me ask you, did the religious leaders have their eyes completely off the word of God? No, they didn't. Which is why, as when we eventually get to Matthew 23, Jesus says, they, the Pharisees, they sit, at Moses's, they sit on Moses' seat, and so you need to do what they say, but don't do what they do. Don't copy their behavior. Copy what they repeat from Moses, which is accurate, but not their actions, because they're hypocrites. So, what went wrong with them? What went wrong with them is they tried to have their eyes on the word of God and the word of man at the same time. And that's something you can't do. Like, try it sometime. You can't look at two things at once. And if you do, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to go cross-eyed and not see anything at all. Or you're going to divert your eyes off of what you were originally supposed to be looking at, which is God's word, onto man's word. And then you're going to be blinded. So how did they get their eyes onto man's word? What was the pit they fell into? By appealing to the traditions of man. They were all about their traditions. They were all about the Mishnah. They said, that's why they went to Jesus. And they're like, hey, your disciples don't wash their hands. And Jesus is like, who cares? It's not in the Bible. And they're like, but our traditions. They were all about their traditions, which are really just man's thoughts, not God's thoughts. And this was something Jesus didn't have the time of day for. See, if there's one thing that Jesus will absolutely just dumpster with his arguments, it's anyone trying to say, thus saith the Lord, and thus, and the Lord hadn't said it. He has no time for that whatsoever. And yet, look at our culture today. Do we ever do that? Do we ever get our eyes off of God's word by trying to look at man's word and God's word at the same time? Is that a problem that our culture faces today? You better believe it is. Because it happens in at least 30 million different ways. Let's talk about just a few here. Though the Bible says it's wrong to murder, many professing Christians, because of their commitment to a certain political party, uh, which last time I checked is just man's thoughts, uh, they will go directly against what the Bible says, and they ironically will even quote parts of the Bible to justify their murderous intentions. It's really a remarkable thing. And why? Because the political party has taken a stance on the life of the unborn that conflicts with the stance of God's word, and so they go against it. How about modern psychology? Does this one line up perfectly with the word of God? No, it doesn't. See, though the Bible tells us to pick up our cross and to follow Christ, to deny ourselves for the sake of serving God and serving others, modern psychology tells us to do what? Love yourself. You've got to love yourself. You've got to be your best you. And to make it worse, we'll have a whole bunch of TV preachers who will tell you the same thing under the guise of following the Bible. This happens all the time. I'm not making this up. I recently saw, uh, it was a post on social media by a woman who had wrongly divorced her husband, started living in adultery with an unbeliever, and in her post, here's what she said. Your personal happiness is no one else's business but your own in which the response is, I think God might object. Of course it. Of course God would object. Of course he would object. Because our personal happiness is not the ultimate thing. What is? Glory to God is the ultimate thing. And my personal happiness goes way lower on the totem pole. And and ironically, I won't find happiness, true happiness, in any form other than what God has prescribed. 
And the remarkable thing about this that I, thought, that I saw was a bunch of professing Christians liked the post, knowing full well how she was living. And again, don't get me wrong. There is repentance for all sins. Or there is forgiveness for all sins, but it only comes via repentance. Church, this is nothing but secular psychology's prescription for happiness. And it's not compatible with the word of God. It's not compatible with with, with what God has told us. Not at all. So why do Christians end up thinking this way? Well, I think it's because they tried to look at two things at once. And instead of the one thing they should have been looking at, they got their eyes off of it onto what they shouldn't be looking at. How about science, for example? Does this ever interfere with what the word of the Lord says? Of course it does. All the time. Take the book of Genesis, or Exodus for that matter, which repeats the same account. It makes it pretty clear that God made the universe and that he didn't do it through the ideas of a certain scientific man in the 17th century. 18th century, sorry. And yet, so many Christians today try to look at man's scientific rationale, which simply leaves them doing what? Taking their eyes off the word of the Lord, onto the eyes of man's thoughts, and neglecting the one over the other, even though they're saying, no, I haven't done that, I'm still using both. Well, no, you're not. You're not using both. And if you think this is an insignificant issue, then we need to have a serious conversation about biblical interpretation and how the way we understand one passage, take Genesis 1 and 2, affects how we understand Romans chapter 1 and 2. It absolutely does. Which is exactly why so many professing Christians today, because they got their eyes off of the start of the Bible, when they got to the middle of the Bible, they got all mixed up in Romans chapter 1 when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender, when it comes to sex, and they have fully embraced the modern sexual revolution with the modern feminist movement full swing in entirety. And why? Because they got their eyes off the word of God. This is no little problem. It has caused all sorts of issues in our society today. And in the last, what, three, four years, we're seeing it on steroids. We're seeing this in our schools. We're seeing this in our culture with our neighbors. People who don't even know their own gender anymore because of the curse of Romans 1, them spiraling down into depravity because they've gotten their eyes off the word of the Lord. This shows up in our church. How? How? Because instead of embracing what God has said about maleness and femaleness, we say, no, 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 we're all equal in Christ. There are no distinctions between man and woman anymore. We can all preach, we can all serve, we can all teach all the same thing. There's no distinction whatsoever. And if you say otherwise, you're actually a hateful bigot who just wants to oppress and marginalize women. And why do they conclude this? Because their eyes have gotten off the word of the Lord onto the word of man. It's no little problem. It shows up in our homes in all sorts of ways. When the word of the Lord says and commands us that he who does not discipline his child hates him and spare not the rod or you will spoil the child, what do we do? Well, secular psychology tells me that we should just do this. This will work. And we move away from what the word of the Lord says on how we're to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Like, just take some time and think through all of the different ways that we've gotten our eyes off of God's word onto the voices of our culture and how it's resulted in us not listening to the word of God. And doing that partly doesn't count, right? You can't listen to two voices at once. This is no little problem. 
And this happens, why? Because people try to look at two things at once instead of the thing they should have been looking at. Look, you can't look at two things at once. I tried it with that video. I tried to look at both words at the same time to see if I could beat the system, but I couldn't do it. It's not possible. I inevitably looked at the one over the other. And this is, and you never play the game Simon Says? Right? Like, you can't do that any more than with Simon Says. You can listen to Simon and Sally. It's one or the other. If you listen to Sally, you're out of the game. If you listen to Simon, well, then you're going to win. And so, too, church, is it impossible for us to listen to God's word and man's at the same time? For if we do, make no mistake, we will be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and we will be left blind. You know, I think the saddest thing about the blindness of these religious leaders was that they thought they were looking to the word of God. They would quote the word of God very often. But what is the truth? They weren't. They weren't. How did this happen? How did they end up accepting the traditions of man in place of the word of the Lord? They fell for the same old tired argument. We've talked about it before. God told me so. God told me I could do this. God told me he wanted me to be happy so I could do this. God told me my situation is special. God told me is the same lie that Satan has been telling since Genesis chapter 3. And mankind has been believing that over and over and over. Do you realize that that lie is where every religious cult comes from? Every Christian religious cult comes from? And do you realize that over half of those cults were born and raised right here in America? They were. Over half of them were. And why? Because America, out of all of the nations, has led the way in swallowing this lie from Satan. And here's how the Pharisees got into this lie. We talked about this before, too. After Moses came down from the mountain, he wrote down God's laws. And those laws are authoritative for us, right? We're supposed to follow those. That's how we know what God's will is. He tells us. Something on click there. God tells us what he thinks. We can't go up to heaven and discover what God thinks, can we? We don't know unless he tells us. Okay? So he gave Moses his law on the mountain, and Moses wrote it down. But here's what the Pharisees said. Moses ran out of ink. And so what he had to do, he couldn't use his printer. He had to orally pass on all the other things that God said on how to apply these laws. He could only write down the basics. That's all he could do. He got the Ten Commandments down, these sort of things. And so he passed on the oral tradition, the oral law, from him to Joshua, to the elders, to the religious leaders, to the priests, all the way down to them. And so if you want to know what God really thinks, yeah, you could read the Bible, but you got to go to them. They'll explain the traditions. You see how deceptive this was? The lie of God told me so has infected so many people's hearts and also their eyes as it has caused them to take their eyes off the word of God onto the word of man. And yet what does the scripture tell us about this? 2 Peter 1.19 We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. And so because the religious leader's eyes were fixed in the wrong place, they became blinded by it. So, where are your eyes fixed? 
Where are you looking? Are you looking to personal experience? Are you looking to whispers in the night? Are you looking to somebody else's whispers in the night? Or are you looking to the perfectly inspired and authoritative and completely... What was the word he used back there? Equipping word of the Lord. That's what it is. It fully and perfectly equips us. So where are your eyes fixed? Are they fixed on God's word or man's? Do you believe the Bible is the only source for faith and practice, or do you believe it's a source? One of many. Yeah, we got to take modern-day science, modern-day psychology, modern-day experiences, modern-day whatever, fill in the blank. And we put those next to the word of the Lord, and that helps us to see. Because after all, all truth is truth, right? There's one problem with that. That's certainly true, don't get me wrong. But there's one problem with that. How can our lying eyes determine what is and isn't truth apart from the word of God? Which one of us has clear enough vision to see past the cultural blinders we all face and determine which things are right and which aren't? Do you believe the Bible or do you believe man's Bible, which is their thoughts and ideas? Because make no mistake, it's one or the other. And if it's the other, it will leave you blind. So if we want to avoid the blindness of the Sadducees and Pharisees, what do we have to do? Fix our eyes upon the right place, and upon the right place is the true and living word of God, not man's biased word. To defeat the bias of unbelief, we must first see the blindness of unbelief, but secondly, are bent towards unbelief. Look at verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. If you notice in verse 1, what does it say that the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus to do? To test him. And how did they test him? By asking him a question. Which was very similar to what Satan did back in Matthew chapter 4, wasn't it? Asking Jesus questions. And this is fascinating for a few reasons. But one of them is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were diametrically opposed to each other. They were not friends, not even a little bit. They would never be caught dead sitting at each other's table in the lunchroom. They didn't like each other. Okay, And here they are joining up to go after Jesus, to test him, to try to trap him. See, the Pharisees, who were they? They were the religious conservatives, and the Sadducees were the religious liberals. The Pharisees prided themselves upon all of God's word, upon living for the kingdom, not for the things of this world. Well, the Sadducees, they did live for the things of this world, right? They were all about the rich parties and all that kind of stuff, and they only believed in the Pentateuch, the first books of the Bible, right? And because of that, they didn't believe in an afterlife at all. Right? And so if you don't believe in an afterlife, what does that make this life? It makes it your only life. So you better live it up. And because they didn't believe in an afterlife at all, that explains probably why they were so sad, which is why they were called Sadducees, right? So, well, it's a mnemonic device. Lisa will help you remember what they actually thought, right? Um, but the point of this is simply that the two groups were not friends. They didn't get along, not even a little bit. In fact, in Acts, when Paul is being challenged by both of them, what does he do? He's just like, I believe in the resurrection. And what do they do? They start going at each other's throats, and he just like slips away like, ha ha, have fun, you know? 
Like, that's how much these two groups were opposed to each other. And yet with Jesus, we find them working together to test him. Now, why would they do that? Have you ever heard the expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, that's part of it, certainly, but it's actually more so than that, because without their even knowing themselves, they actually were both on the same team. And whose team was that? Satan's. See, as agents of Satan, all they were, though they didn't realize it, were they were fingers from the same hand. They thought they were distinct from one another, but if you trace that back to its source, it's the same hand, and that's certainly what they were. And why did they want to test Jesus? Well, we already answered that. It wasn't because they wanted truth. It was because they wanted their truth. You ever heard that before? This is my truth? Of course you have. And because they wanted their truth, they clung on to their unbelieving bias, even despite the overwhelming evidences that were put before them. Think about it. They heard Jesus' heavenly teaching. They saw his heavenly living. They saw his heavenly miracles over and over and over. We already talked about those today. But it didn't fit with the desires of their heart. It didn't fit with what they wanted to be true. And so they rejected him. What were their desires? What did they want? Conquering king, not a suffering servant. They wanted the Messiah to come in on the white war horse and do their bidding for them by kicking Rome off, not a Messiah who would come on a lowly donkey to suffer and serve. They wanted Jesus to accept them and reject and castigate others. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't serve their agenda at all. In fact, he often opposed it. He condemned it. And he condemned it, why? Because the driving force behind blind and biased unbelief is ultimately, at its center, rebellion against a holy God. Rebellion against a holy, all-powerful God, which is a pretty stupid thing to do. We rebel against God because we think we know what we deserve. We rebel against God because we think we know better. We think we're clever. Okay, I understand the Bible says this, but come on, wink, wink. Kind of true, but really, if we're going to understand things, we've got to look over here. This is what we do. See, unbelief isn't just being an atheist. No, it's actually a whole lot more involved than that. It's actually more insidious than that. Unbelief is also when we lose our job, when we lose our health, when we lose that special loved one and our hearts cry out to follow what Job's wife said, to curse God and die. But here's the thing. Whatever it is we say, God, if you give me that, then I'll serve you. That thing's your true God. It is. That's your true God. If you say, if I get this, I will obey you and follow you. Well, don't say God's your God. He's the genie in the lamp that you are paying lip service to to get your true God. Think about the unbelief of the Israelites for a minute with me. God blessed them immensely over and over, and then he proceeds to test their faith with hardship. Right? He blesses them, and then he takes it away. And, what, and how do they respond to this? They start grumbling. We'd be better off back in Egypt. Forget this. I'd rather be in slavery. I don't know about you, but this is awful. It's ridiculous. Look how blind their statements are. I mean, their situation back in Egypt was not a pretty situation. It was a hard situation. Certainly they went through some hardships in the wilderness, but not like what they had back there. 
And yet, they were so blind in their unbelief that they started grumbling, they started complaining, and started saying, we want what we had before. We want to go back to slavery. And if that's not a shining star example of the complete and total blinding bias of unbelief, then I don't honestly know what is. I mean, look at these jokers. They saw God part the Red Sea. Like, that's a big miracle, okay? Like, you can't be like, oh, wow, that was a crazy tornado that held that thing up for hours on end. There's no natural explanation for this, right? They saw God feed them bread from heaven. They saw him give, him, give them water from a rock. They saw them make their clothes last for the 40-plus years when they were in the wilderness, which is pretty amazing because some of mine don't even last 40 days. And yet, how do they respond when their true God takes, which is comfort, is taken from them? They complain. They whine. They're ready to curse God and die, which is precisely the attitude we find of these religious leaders. Well, if you're not going to come as a conquering king, as I expect you to, and do all the things I want, then I don't care how many miracles you show me, I will not bow the knee. I won't do it. You better change. You better do what I want, God. So it's no wonder Jesus says what he says when he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Look what he says. An evil, adulterous generation seeks a sign, but to them, no sign will be given. And why? Well, for one, it's not going to change their minds. Their minds are made up. It's not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of the heart. And so because Jesus saw the state of their heart, he saw their willful, unbelieving bias, which rebelliously refused to see the truth. You know what this teaches us? It teaches us that unbelief isn't the result of a lack of evidence, but the lack of a sufficient heart change. That's the problem. See, think about this, for example. Was Cain, Cain and Abel, right? Was Cain lacking evidence? Not even a little bit. He talked with God. What about Pharaoh? Was Pharaoh lacking evidence? I mean, he got some pretty powerful, miraculous evidences that made it abundantly clear that there was such a thing as God and he was not it. And yet, what did this guy do? Had a hard heart. Refused to believe. He lacked a soft heart to see. And the same thing goes for the Israelites and the religious leaders of Jesus' day and, hear me when I say this, every unbeliever today. At the center of their unbelief lies not a lack of evidence but a rebellious heart that cries out as the Jews did before Pilate, we will not have this man reign over us. No. Give us Barabbas. I'll take Barabbas, the murderer, over Jesus. Because if Jesus is king, that means I have to bow the knee when it comes to everything he says. That means I have to keep my eyes fixed upon his word, as we talked about before, and not the words of man or the words of my heart. Deep down, every unbeliever knows this. Do you know that? They might not willingly profess this, but deep down they know this. This is what the Bible tells us. These aren't my ideas. This is what the Bible says. Um, But what's interesting enough is every once in a while, you'll find one who will acknowledge what I'm telling you. They'll tell you, yes, it's true. For example, Harvard's atheist biologist, uh, Richard Lewontin, he once admitted the bias of his personal unbelief. Okay, so I'm going to read this. Follow with me. It'll it'll, It'll be worth it. Here's what he says. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding, to keep, is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and religion. He calls it the supernatural. 
We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, and in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. And why? Because we have a prior commitment. And what's the commitment, he goes on to say? A commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material or naturalistic explanation of the world. He goes on to say, on the contrary, that we are, fo- we are forced by our commitment to material causes, to naturalism, to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of constru- concepts, there's a lot of words, that produce material explanations. Okay? He's saying we have to come up with material and naturalistic explanations. And here's why. Here's why we can't allow supernatural religious-based explanations. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Wow, is that a profession. (laughs) We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. And so materialism is absolute. Naturalism is absolute. Don't talk to me about God. Why? Because my heart doesn't want the divine foot to get into the door of my heart. That's an amazing and honest recognition here. See, here's the problem. What if that divine foot gets into the door of our life and then suddenly it insists on sliding a little bit more until the full leg comes through? And then before that, you have the torso coming through the door. And before that, the arms. And then the head pops through and then that mouth starts talking. Well, that's going to be a problem, especially if I want to follow the passions of my heart and the passions of what I am after, my ideas instead of his. Here's why they're against this. Because ultimately it means you lose your autonomy you lose the right to say, I am the God of my life. I am the captain of the ship. It's my way or the highway. You lose that. You lose the right to sing Bon Jovi's song, It's My Life. It's gone. You've got to throw that CD out. You lose the right to, to go with the Burger King motto of have it my way because it becomes have it God's way. It's exactly what happens. And the human heart, the unregenerate, non-grace-filled human heart hates that with all of its might. I mean, think of, think of the millennial reign of Christ, which is coming very soon. Okay? What happens at the end of that? They, these people grow up in this perfect society where it says that even somebody who dies at the age of 100 will be considered just a child. It's going to be remarkable. It won't be perfect, but pretty, pretty close. And at the end of it, what do they do with Jesus being here, ruling and reigning, and there being no more wars? They turn their plowshares, they turn their swords and stuff into plowshares and pruning hooks, what happens? They rebel. They rise up against the Son of Man and they say, we will not have this man reign over us. It's Psalm 2 on full display. Why do the nations rage? Why do, they, why do the peoples plot in vain? Well, I'll tell you why. Because their hearts hate God. They're not indifferent to him. They're not just, oh, I don't, I don't have enough evidence. No. The heavens declare the glories of God, and that means we know in our heart of hearts there is such a thing as God, there is such a person as God, and it's not us. And yet we suppress it. And so because of this, we'll do anything to keep him out. And there's all sorts of ways that people do this too. Atheistically, people convince themselves there is no God, and all this just happened. How? I don't know, just popped into existence one day. Religiously, how does this happen? People convince themselves that there is a God, but guess what? He's on my side. That's convenient. He agrees with all the things that I think, and he approves with two big thumbs up every time I do something. It's, it's really a wonderful relationship we have. 
He approves of what I approve of. He disapproves exactly of what I disapprove of. And it's almost like we're the same person. Almost, right? Uh, Yes, we aren't perfect, though, and we'll admit this. We'll admit we aren't perfect. Uh, But then we go on to say, all right, well, since I'm not perfect, there are, yeah, you know, there's some things I got to do to keep this God who's pretty much on my side, on my side forever, okay? So I'll follow the list. I'll do the things. I'll obey, right? I'll do the, you know, as long as those things aren't too extravagant, as long as they don't go against what I desire, my list, you know, and it's not that bad of a deal because they already kind of match up almost anyway. But you know what? If you read the Bible, what does it tell us about this idea? He's not on our side, not even a little bit. He's actually our enemy prior to the cross and prior to grace changing us. He is our enemy. And this list that we think we follow, when we look at his true list, we break them all, even in our obedience. Like, have you thought about that? Even in our obedience, prior to a regenerated heart, we're still doing the right thing for a wrong sinful motive. It's still tainted by sin. It's a bleak situation, okay? Like, depravity is a bleak reality. And so unless we receive the righteousness of Christ, God's way, which comes by a gift called grace to us, not by works, but through faith, so that no one may boast, we're completely hosed. We have no hope whatsoever. You can't earn for God's approval. You can't work for it. And you definitely, we, I'll include myself, why not, we definitely don't deserve it. And yet our hearts whisper to us, yeah, you do. You're not quite as bad as these people over here. You're, you're really pretty good overall. I mean, especially if you walk out down the street and you look at the so-and-sos, they're a mess. I'm, you're not that bad. This is the kind of stuff we do. Now tell me, who here naturally, apart from the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, enjoys singing hymns like such a worm as I? Like, try to write a modern psychology uh, or even just, you know, take that with your best life now kind of books and see how many you sell. Not a lot. It's not a popular message to our culture. It's not positive and encouraging K-love, okay? And so in response to the rebellious human heart, God still sends grace, but what happens? The heart rejects it. The heart hates it. But, and here's the thing, if we do reject God's grace, we've completely lost the battle for belief, which leads us to our third point. Let's read 4 through 11. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and by and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the four thousands, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it then that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here we find one of the 700 examples of a, uh, what is called um, a dim-witted disciple moment. It's a dim-witted disciple moment, right? There's a lot of them, and we have them too, so don't judge. But here's the point. Look at verse 7. What does Jesus tell them to do? Watch out and beware. Two things. Watch out and beware. Of what? The leaven 
or the unbelief, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? And what is Jesus' point here? All right, what is he pointing them to as the solution, as the means of battling against unbelief? What is it? It's God's provision. God's provision. Not our provision for ourselves. Not none of that. No, 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 no. God's provision. That is how we battle unbelief. And why? Because apart from God's grace, the human heart wants to pro- find provision in itself. Provision apart from God. It tries to fill our starving bellies on our own. And how do we try to do that? Well, in about a million different ways. Okay? But trying to do so is a lot like trying to feed a crowd of 5,000 people with just a few loaves. You're not going to do it. It's literally impossible. And it will leave you left starving. And yet we naturally try to do this in our lives by trying to feed our starving souls with things like money, jobs, sex, careers, and our hobbies. But it doesn't work. It doesn't. There's only one thing that can fill our starving souls, and it's the bread of heaven, the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ, who was broken and torn for us so that we might live. Which means that when Jesus refers to in verse 4, when he speaks about this sign of Jonah, okay, he was saying that's the only sign you're going to get, which is the sign we get today. Well, what is this sign of Jonah? What are you talking about? Well, back a couple chapters ago in Matthew, we saw this. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. And why? Because that was where the battle for unbelief was, took place. That's where it happened. Because without that battle being won there on the cross... we would never go on to have the blessings of belief, which leads us to our last point here. Look at 12 through 17. Then they understood that Jesus did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And let me just pause there. That is the million-dollar question. That's the million-dollar question. Who is Jesus? Is he a good teacher? Is he a liar? You can't say he's a good teacher. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, you can say he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or you can bow the knee and say he's Lord. But you cannot say he was just a good teacher and there's things we should learn from him. No, no good teacher would say the things that Jesus said if they weren't true. He said, I hold the keys of Hades and heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. I mean, these are some very bold statements that if they are not true, then he's the devil of hell or he's nuts. Let's go on reading. Who do you say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, and this is kind of the center highlight point of all the disciples in the entire book. Ready? Bless, he says this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Throughout Jesus' teaching, he continually talks about blessed are those with ears to hear and blessed are those with eyes to see. You remember this? I mean, it happens over and over and over. He quotes Isaiah about it several times. And in verse 12, what do we see happen? 
these dim-witted disciples, the dimness starts to fade as the light comes in and they start to see. And in verse 16, we're going to look at this next week, but what does Peter do then? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a bold profession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And let me ask you, why was Peter able to see this? Because he was determined to? Because he really tried? Because he created his own spiritual glasses that allowed him to see? No. Which is why Jesus says it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to you. Who was it? The Father who is in heaven. The Father who is in heaven, whom by grace through faith in Christ we can come to personally know. You can know the God of the universe. Do you realize how radical that is? How remarkable that is? See, before we were completely cut off and alienated from God, uh, but now, as Hebrews tells us, through Christ we have been brought near. We can run into the throne room of God and shout out, Abba, Father, to him. And he listens to us, and he answers us, and he always gives us what is best for us. Not what we want, but what's best for us. Before we were sons and daughters of the devil, but now, because of Christ, we can be adopted as sons and daughters of the king. Before we were blind, but now we see. And why? It's not because of something we've done, but because of what he's done for us. We blind, biased, defeated, and cursed sinners. And what he has done is he has won the battle that you and I could never win. And he won it so that he could bring us the blessings that we never deserved, nor we could ever even possibly have fathomed. And how? By taking our blindness upon himself. At the cross, he was blinded. He was slapped. And he said, prophesy, who hit you? He knew who hit him. But nevertheless, he went through with this humiliation, ultimately to the point of death on a cross. And why? To make so that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. That's why. Though we were blind, now we see. And now, because we hear and see, we can experience the wonderful and glorious blessings that our Father in heaven continues to shine down on us. Read Ephesians 1 about these wonderful blessings. All of the blessings in the heavenly places are ours. All of them. Not just a few. Not just depending on if we have a good day or a bad day. They're all available to us. And they come to us from our Father in heaven who showers them down upon us as we continue to fix our eyes upon the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, We need a C.S. Lewis quote here, so I'm going to use him. Here's what he says. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. See, some of you are trying to view your marriage through the darkened light of this world. Some of you are trying to view your jobs through the darkened light of this world. Some of you are trying to view your careers through the darkened light of this world. Your relationships, whether that be with a friend, a spouse, or children, through the darkened light of this world. And you can't figure out why you keep bumping into things. Well, I can. It's because you're blind. It's because you're not looking to the light of the world, which is Jesus Christ, who alone gives us spiritual eyes to see. And so hear me when I say this. Until you come to see with eyes of faith, until everything you perceive is filtered through the Son of God, you'll be blind. And you'll continue to bump into things into this life until one day, very soon, you will stand before a holy God and bump into Him, and you won't like the outcome. Because that holy God will judge and damn you to an eternal hell, and He will be right to do so. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God. Until you come to see Jesus Christ, God's Son, as your righteousness, you will be blind and you will live without the blessing of spiritual sight. Do you have that blessing in your life? Do you have eyes of faith? If not, what are you waiting for? Believe and you will see. Just as the rising sun allowed C.S. Lewis and us to see everything else in this world, when you believe in the Son of God, you will see things in a way you never thought you were able to before. You didn't even know they were there. It's a remarkable thing, and many of you have testimonies of exactly what I'm talking about, how God saved you from your deaf and dumb state. Do you have eyes of faith? If not, why not come get them? Hear him, ye deaf, ye praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap, ye lame, for joy. Father, I pray for the one here, Lord, who is blind spiritually. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that through the power of your word, not my word, not man's words, not man's cleverness, but Jesus Christ, the perfect and holy, slain and risen Son of God, that they would come to new life. Father, we don't see everything as you do, which is why we walk by faith. So we ask that as your followers, Lord, as your children, that we would walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to go out into this cruel and dark world knowing that every step is illuminated through your word and that we will not bump into anything that can truly harm us, whether that be persecution, whether that be hardship or rejection, whatever, or even death. For we know that because Jesus died and rose again, there's nothing that can truly kill us, for death is but a shadow. And that shadow passes over us all one day, And if we are in Christ, it will lead to everlasting life in the morning dawn. So, Father, we ask that by faith that we would walk after you, that we would pursue you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing our closing song, O for a thousand tongues to sing.